This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. A little later, you'll hear from today's guest, Mancon McGann, about the Irish language and its capacity to hold the real and the otherworldly. The Royal Irish Academy holds the most important collection of Irish language manuscripts in the country, and more specifically, it holds medical manuscripts. 6,000 pages across 30 different textbooks. One of these medical books is called the Book of Olis, or High Brazil. High Brazil is a place that sometimes exists. More on this later from Manchon Magan. But now I want you to imagine yourself blindfolded and being taken somewhere on a boat. You don't know where you're going. You can taste the salt, damp air, feel the roll of the sea, hear gulls, sense the fog. When the blindfold is removed, you can see you're on an island. You feel sick with fear or actual illness you're not sure. You look out to sea and in the distance, you think you can see the familiar shapes of other islands. Aran, Gollum Head, Eris Baghill, but you don't know exactly where you are or why you are here. The last thing you remember was having a row with your wife, leaving the house and wandering in despair for some days before the men, the same men who brought you here in the boat, attacked you and kidnapped you. Two days pass and you're still on the island. There is an islander Now he's shouting at you and the men who brought you here. He is shouting at you to leave, that you have no place here. You run for the boat, but somehow and for some reason before you do, the old man gives you a book and tells you that it will change your life. It will change your life, he tells you, but you must not open the book for seven years. You clutch it as you are slung back in the boat and spat out again on the mainland in Galway. It's 1684 and you are Murrow Oli. You've been so frightened by the experience, you dare not open the book. You hide it, even from yourself, for seven years and continue as best you can. But you think of the book and the island every day. And after seven years, you take out the book and carefully place it on a table. You open it and... Inside you find strange drawings and inscriptions. There are tables of cures and medicines and charts of plants and how to use them. You become, as if by magic, a doctor capable of diagnosing illness and mixing cures. This book has given you the power to treat and heal and perform surgery. This story, this account, isn't just a tale. It's written down by a respected historian, Roderick O'Flaherty. Over the course of centuries, details are added. People tell versions, but the essentials are the same. A man, Murrow Oli, a real man from Galway, is kidnapped and taken to an island off the west coast, is given a book and returns with the skills of a doctor. This book exists. This book is now stored in the Royal Irish Academy. The book of Olis or High Brazil. 
It was written in Irish and Latin in 1442, and to hear more about this mysterious book and its origins, we'll meet today's guest, Mancon McGann. I sat down to chat with him in the Royal Irish Academy itself. Mancon is the author of several books, but his last two, 32 Words for Field, and his newest book for children, Tree Dogs, both explore nature and ways of looking at the natural world through the Irish language and how it helps us decipher and name what's around us and what's useful to us. Yeah, well, we depend entirely on our on our environment, and all people did. Like last year, I was looking at sea words, and suddenly you realise there is words for every single type of current, every single type of rock, every single type of fish species, and where they are and what time of the month. That's because people's lives depended entirely on those things. So it was like. You know, in the same way as we have now amassed this vast amount of information in physics and computers, because that's what we depend on. Back then, it was vital that people would know that there was a suitu, that there was a particular type of noise connected to the stones moving in and out of the of a beach cove, um, or that there was a word for like um, levador, the man who could look out for the herrings and would see them circling around with the water and would then light a piece of paper to let other people know where the herrings were so that a net could go around it. Like, it's, o- it's only vital that people are hyper-observant when their lives depend upon it. And I noticed in 32 Words for a Field, which is your previous book, you have a new one out now, you talk about the waves and there are different, three different types of waves which are not only quite specific in how they look, but also very, very linked to folklore. What are those three waves? Yeah, so, you know, the main Irish word for wave is town in Irish, town. And town means a wave, but of course it also means the entire ocean because you can't differentiate the wave from the sea. So hartun in the in the national anthem, hartun, the ron, egg cooing, that means the sea. So it means a wave, it means the sea, it means the skin or surface of something, it can mean the height of an animal, it can mean... Um, low-lying land. So waves were a key element of natural life, obviously fishing, but there was also the mythological element of the town. There were three primordial waves in Ireland long ago, and they, were, they had names. It was Town Cliana, Town Tuya, and Town Rudriga, or Town Ruri. But you can actually still hear these waves. Like, I go around the country, and a woman will tell me, I was down in West Cork, and a woman said her granny used to bring her out on stormy nights to hear Town Cliana roar. Now, Tonkleana has been roaring for like thousands of years. It's said that Amergain, who was the first poet who came to Ireland, Tonkleana picked him up and dropped him on the sea. So that was allegedly 700 BC, the 1st of April 700 BC that happened. But actually, there's all these stories about Tonkleana with Lou, with a god that's often associated with crafts and art. So he's been in the consciousness of Ireland for 2,000 years, and yet you can still go out today and people will say they can hear Town Cleana. And the same way I've seen people point out Town Rory up off the coast of County Down to me. These concepts, not only are they in the language, but they're in people's minds still. So it's not just the, the natural world that people are observing, but it, it, it's something about the supernatural there as well. So what do they then hold as, these words hold as ideas, not just as geographical sort of features or occurrences? You see... The language is based on the old mindset in Ireland, and the old mindset saw no difference between unsail reilich and the real world and the other world were both parts of existence. So, and the best way you can see that is in the, the difference between counter and altar. And counter is a word that people learn in school for a place or a region or a locality. But then the opposite of counter is altar, which is the other world, the nether realm. And there was always only this thin veil between counter and altar. And people knew that you could jump from one to the other. 
And again, I'm not finding that information in the books. We know that. We all know about our uncle coming home from the pub and saying, oh, he'd see the fairies playing hurling there on the beach or there was a leprechaun on that list. This is still part of our, almost part of our consciousness. So it was natural that it was part of the language. And it's all about the the farming world and the fishing world being in the landscape, but also the other world. You'd see these otherworldly beings in there. I love that the language has the capacity to encompass both the real and the unreal. I, we don't really have that in English in the same way. Um, we've talked a little bit about the sea, which has huge significance to us as an island nation. And for this programme, you've written about another island uh, that is connected to the book of Olise and High Brazil. So would you read that for us now? Yeah, definitely. I've never seen the Book of Olis, and I don't think I want to, really. I prefer to just imagine it, to know it exists out there in the same world that I live and breathe in. Any trip up to Dublin is made more vibrant and resonant with the knowledge that on Kildare Street, just two blocks east of Grafton Street, there are remarkably well-preserved human bodies from three and a half thousand years ago, lying in carefully lit glass cabinets in the elaborate Victorian salons of the National Museum. They were pickled and preserved in peat bogs eons before anyone had even thought or heard of me or you or even of Pontius Pilate and John the Baptist. And right between Kildare Street and all the garish bustle of Grafton Street is a building which houses this intriguing book that's believed to have been given to the prestigious O'Lee clan from West Galway by inhabitants of... of... I need a moment to actually work out how best to explain this. Inhabitants of, of a magical island, an island of unknown and unknowable provenance called High Brazil, an enigma, a place apart. It's kind of tricky to know how to even discuss this whole issue. But for generations upon generations, High Brazil has been talked about in fireside conversations all along the west coast of Ireland. It was a fact of life for many, as real as Ballyhonus or Bowrain is to those who've, who've never set eyes on them. Like, I've never been to Valencia Island in my life, but I don't doubt it exists. I've sat in Port McGee in a thick mist and looked out on nothing, on a miasma of white vapour. But still, I accept Valencia Island as part of reality. And that's how it was for people with regard to High Brazil. Many, many people throughout history claim to have seen it. And there's still some alive today who've told me directly that they've seen this elusive mystical island. But there are far more people living along the west coast of Ireland at points from which it's supposed to be visible who've never once even caught a glimpse of it. It both exists and doesn't exist. Ma, ma higantu latme, if you get the drift. Some people claim it exists sometimes, but then vanishes behind a dense, soupy fog for seven-year periods. This nebulousness and uncertainty about its existence stretches as far back as we can tell right up until the 14th century, when it appeared on an actual official map, a navigational chart in a position off the southwest coast of Ireland. Suddenly, the physicality and reality of the island came to the fore. It began appearing in maritime records with increasing regularity. It was even, over the following centuries, fully explored and documented. Though, that's not to say it actually existed just that it was believed to exist, and there was further rational proof to validate its existence. The likelihood, though, is that 
It didn't exist and it never has. We could dismiss the whole thing as a flight of fancy, a tall tale or a maritime misunderstanding, except that there's this book, the book of Olives, this solid, real, molecule and atoms book, carefully catalogued and categorised on a shelf in the underground vaults of the RIA. It's all a bit embarrassing in a way, or at least it's hard to get one's head around it. And I'm okay with figments of our imagination and with solid real-world objects, but it's the in-between that really throws me. It's easier to countenance that I can look at the body of a man who lived three and a half thousand years ago and that I can still see the hair follicles on his skin and his perfectly preserved nail cuticles in a building on Kildare Street than it is to contend with the idea that there's a book just a short block over on Dawson Street that reputedly comes from an island that doesn't exist or that only sometimes exists. The drifts, like by osmosis, into our reality every seven years only to vanish again. I need help getting my mind around that. I keep going back and forth about whether or not I should go and see it. Occasionally the RIA do display it publicly, but the more I think about it, the more I feel I don't actually want to see it. I want it to exist without me needing to set eyes on it. I want to imagine it drifting in and out of some nebulous interdimensional vapour every seven years. I think I want everything to be like that. A passing breath that appears, then disappears forever and a day. Because that is actually how everything is. So in that piece, uh, the island in the sea is such a brilliant example of Irish imagination, how it conjures up a place, a whole island that emerges from the waves. The, the, the idea of high Brazil, whether it exists or not, that was entirely comfortable to the Irish mind. Like there's even words in Irish to describe the physicality, but the potential non-substantiality of things. There's a word "crier" and it refers to the, the vulnerability or the potential non-existence of, of physical objects. And so crier can refer to the crumbling texture of soil in a ploughed field when dry after rain. And it can mean, it can mean a swamp, because you're never quite sure is a swamp solid or liquid until you put your foot on it. So the idea that there's an island, high Brazil, which may or may not exist, is actually entirely understandable and natural. And it's entirely understandable to our new understanding of quantum physics, where everyone is saying the world, as far as we know, is composed of elementary particles that are forever materialising and then dematerialising, only to reappear somewhere else. This is normal now. It just happens, it was built into this language and our consciousness long ago. So when you're walking around and you're, uh, you know, you, you wake up and you're speaking English for the day, are you a different person or are you looking at, you know, a different dimension of the countryside or wherever you are if you're thinking in Irish? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I'd be entirely different depending on language I'm speaking. And it's a few things. It's theoretical and conceptual because the, because let's say if I'm saying justice in Irish, I say coherum the Fianna, which is the justice of the Fianna. So I have to bring in this a band of supernatural hunter-gatherers, Finn and the Fianna, who lived like at least 2,000 years ago, uh, probably in the Bronze Age or Iron Age, into my into my trying to explain a modern day concept of justice. Um, but really the key element is, it's my mother tongue. And you know the way, we know that if you put a baby seal among a whole beach of seals, or a fawn with a whole park of, of deer, they recognize the lowing of their mother. 
above any other one. So we have that pull to our mother tongue. So when I was young, my mother would say, you know, her words of reassurance and nourishment were in Irish. So when, I, when I'm in West Kerry, I feel a bit uneasy in the belly speaking English. But when I'm in Dublin, I can feel a bit uneasy speaking Irish because English has been used to explain the land of, in Dublin for so many centuries. So I think that idea that somehow when you're in a land, the language you speak has a resonance with it and it's hard to speak the wrong language in the wrong bit of land. So the Book of Olives, it maybe has a supernatural origins, but one of the very real uses for the book is as a medical manual written in Latin and Irish. It has treatments using herbs and plants. Yeah, within the language is that idea, as you said, of the natural and supernatural, but also that there are illnesses and that there are cures for so many of the illnesses. Um, and the thing is, a lot of those words for either the herbs or the ways of preparing them are in Irish. So if you lose that, you can lose the cure, the traditional cure. Like there's a concept um, in Irish called fuilach fuiraid. Fuilach fuiraid is ferret's milk. Okay, but then how do you get fuilach fuiraid, or what do you use it for? But even how do you get it first? You use a preslach, and a preslach is a gag or a rod that's secured in a ferret's mouth which you then somehow help, it helps you then milk it if the, if the, if the stick is tied to his mouth. And then the, the Friedrich Ferret is then used to cure um, the whooping cough and different things like that. But it was always women who knew this knowledge. The woman knew how to use a broth, and a broth was a film on an animal's eye that healed, um, it was healed by hare's blood. But, I mean, if, if, if there was no woman around, a man would do it. But still, in, still where I am in Westmeath and Four, there's women who know all the cures, for, mainly for animals, for using on cattle. But the men will do it if, there's no, if they don't have wife or who, to, to mix up the right poultice or the mix. And all of those, they're, mem- they're remembered in the folklore, but actually they're mostly remembered in the language. And you've spent years travelling around and encountering people, encountering women, no doubt learning from them as you go. You're going to read another piece that you've written for Shelf Marks, uh, Bog Plants, which takes its cue from the herbal theme of the Book of Olives, but also uh, from a woman who you met. An amazing woman who has so much knowledge, but it's very directed. It's about the herbal remedies that she can find in the bog. And she could probably have gone on for weeks showing me different herbs and different plants, but there was one that was really key to her. So yeah, this is this piece I wrote about that. Bog plants. Much of the most valuable indigenous wisdom regarding the natural world is still known about, thankfully. It's just that it's now known by an ever-decreasing number of people. And it's housed in a gradually diminishing number of places. It makes these isolated individuals and the institutions who act as custodians of the information more vital and precious as every year passes. I first heard of Margaret Kitty Nivwil when she rang in to Unselo Yas, a West Kerry programme on Radio Nagueltachta, a few months ago, to offer her insights into the medicinal properties of herbs, mosses and wildflowers that grow on the bogs of Ireland. The only problem was that she was speaking Donegal Irish and it was hard for me and others of my West Kerry dialect to understand her. She was mainly trying to express the importance of the bochron, bog bean, a long straggly plant that grows in bog pools, in treating hemochromatosis and other diseases of the blood. But it was clear she had much more information to impart and so I determined to make a trip north to Donegal as soon as I could. A few weeks later, I found myself in Guidor on a Saturday night and I rang Margaret Kitty to ask could I come over to her after Mass the next day. Her house was at the very end of a winding laneway, up through a narrow maze of roads that ran uphill from the coast. 
Hers was the last settled patch before the mountain gave itself over to the bog. I was worried that she might be reluctant to share her knowledge, but I needn't have had any such concerns. The minute we met, she began to explain to me how she had got the knowledge from her mother, who in turn got it from her mother, and so on, right back through the generations. Now she felt it as her duty to share it as widely as possible. She had no truck with those who kept such things to themselves. Barely five minutes after we had met, she had me striding up the mountain after her, as she pointed with passionate gesticulation to tiny plants I had never even noticed before, and at other common weeds that I'd always dismissed. Her message was very clear, just how valuable each plant was for a particular ailment or condition. There was Liv Fadrick, greater plantain for burns, Kinal Duchesach, woundworth for pains, Nail Pertig, tormental for diarrhea, Livachri, heath bedstraw for heart issues, Bueller, watercress for coughs, Bachron, bog bean for blood ailments, Rua, golden maidenhair for the kidneys, Nantog, nettle for circulation, and Drishog, brambles as an antibiotic. She made it clear what plants we should be eating in springtime as an inner cleanse and how to ferment frog spawn to use as a balm to ease sore joints. I was mesmerised. But what should we do with all this information now? And with all of the insights and knowledge gathered over eons and now stored in the minds of the last few experts and in the heavy tomes shelved and categorised in distinguished institutions? They help make the natural world come alive to a spectacular degree. They represent the collective wisdom of our ancestors. We can either choose to ignore them and dismiss them, or bring them out into the light of day and renew our connection to the natural world through this lore, this knowledge, these timeless insights. As always, the choice is ours. So meeting Margaret Kitty, you know, shows the knowledge that we have is wrapped up in language. It's wrapped up in the plants that we're, we're finding and all of that knowledge needs to be preserved. And you said in that piece that we need to harness collective wisdom of our ancestors. But how, how do we go about that? How do we go about making those connections or renewing those connections with the natural world and our lore? A really good way is looking at place names. Like, we're so lucky that we have the place names in English. A lot of them are sort of gobbledygook. But beneath them will be the Irish version. And, like, Margaret Kitty's knowledge was based in language, but actually was all based in a place, in a certain bog. And you'll find so many places in Ireland that have this connection to healing elements to them. Like, there's a place on the back road between Kong and Clare Morris, Bailon and the Briskin. It sounds like Bail on the Briskin means nothing in English. Bail on the Briskin, when you hear it in Irish, Bail or Bail or the mouth or the town of the ford of the Briskon. The Briskon is Tansy. And it was a herb that was really vital to people long ago. So it was, it was important that people knew where the tansy was to be found. The tansy could, tansy will repel insects and uh, worms and things from meat. So if you want to keep your meat, you know, through the winter, you wrapped it in tansy. But tansy can also induce miscarriages. So if a woman had to have an abortion in some way, had I was finding herself in a difficult situation, it was vital that she knew where the tansy was, that she could sneak out at night, access this tansy. And all of that is still encoded in place names that when we drive by, when we see them on the front uh, shield of a bus, the knowledge is there. And we shouldn't take that for granted. You go up to Northern Ireland, the place names are all in the gobbledygook English version. You go to the Isle of Skye or Scotland, there's places there that have that wisdom, the information about different 
climactic changes that happen there, about different healing herbs that are there, about different mills and waters and springs that can heal you. But we don't understand them if they're in the English version. It's all just sort of mixed up and jumbled. And tansy itself is a beautiful little yellow button flower, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. It smells a little bit like rosemary, a little bit like camphor. Like, I mean, we need to get to know the natural world, but it just happens we can do it through different ways. There are keys into the language, there are keys through place names, there's keys through mythology, or just through botany to observing the natural world and seeing what's there. But also that connection, it feels like it's even more urgent now, doesn't it? Things have changed. We're in the middle of a pandemic, we're in the middle of a climate crisis, and it feels like we need to go backwards in a way to heal. Like, in one way you could say, yeah, this is a time of despair, and yet it's so encouraging to see how people are going back to the natural world and it seems slightly towards the Irish language like you know Duolingo this app to use to learn Irish language the numbers were off the charts of how many people were downloading Duolingo this year in the same way that people you know during during Covid were growing things and, and buying seeds and, and getting out into nature while swimming so it does seem that we are re reconnecting ourselves with nature with the folklore to a degree that gives us a, a glimpse into that and particularly with this language like you know I the, my book was I had a book about the Irish language it should, should have only sold a few hundred copies that was the level of interest that was in the Irish language until recent and it just seems that because of Covid and because of climate change people are saying we're feeling disconnected um, unrooted from the past and we want to make that that connection again like there's a word in Irish called Dilahar and Dilahar means the desolation or the abandonment of place it's like the, the emptiness of a place once it's been abandoned by human beings and destroyed. So then collectively, what do you feel that we need to do? And, you know, you're a writer and you're writing about the natural world. What then do you have a view on what we collectively have to do? So it strikes me, you know, we our problem is we've been human centric up until this point. And we need to not be like that at the moment. So we're even thinking we need to find a solution to the natural world and the problems that are in it. And it strikes me that there's something actually else more potent going on. There seems to be, and maybe I'm rosy-eyed, but a raising consciousness that people are becoming naturally more clued in to the, to the world around them. Now, I can't prove that, but if that's happening, then we just need to allow that and facilitate that and encourage that to happen. Like, we know we're not going to force people to take more care of nature. But if it seems that they felt this disconnect, they were connected with the nature absolutely until the industrial age. And then it was a relief to get away from that. And now they feel, I feel an emptiness. So they are seeking some way to get back to it, either winter swimming or learning a language or going out and learning about the plants and the trees. All we need to do is encourage that and play our part in it. And I think it could kick off. I think um, there could be a movement that will grow. That's at least my hope. And if that doesn't happen, well then, Tommy, dribbled. We're, we're in trouble if it doesn't. And, and we are changing. You've talked a little bit about change there. And you yourself, you're a travel writer. You're known well for your travels. I mean, you've broadcast from so many places around the world and you've written for so many publications. But um, am I right in saying that pandemic and restrictions aside, you've made a decision not to travel as much? Yeah, so I think about a month before the pandemic kicked in, I had made this big announcement that I wasn't going to travel. That was the beginning of 2020. I was only going to take trains. And that, I would, had you asked me a year before, I would never in a million years say I was going to stop flying. 
But something happened in the year 2019 to a lot of us. That was the year of Extinction Rebellion. It was the year of the big UN's notices saying we are on the edge. And I suddenly thought, God, I've spent 20 years encouraging people to take more flights. And I didn't know I was doing harm at the time. I can convince myself that I didn't. But if I was to look back in 10 years in the future and think that I had spent 10 further years encouraging people to travel, I could never do that. So I decided, look, I'm going to stop flying, at least for holidays and for travel journalism. If there was some vital bit of work I had to do, I might take a flight. But otherwise, I got really excited because I decided there's so much of the world I want to explore by train now. So just before COVID, I had plans. I was going to even take a, a train and a boat up to Iceland. I was going to see, could I get to the Canary Islands? And just in January of 2020, I did take a train down to the Costa del Sol. So it's actually opening up new worlds for me, not, not, not closing them down. But actually, you're a rare person that you're able to publicly, you know, at least um, accept your negative role in encouraging people to travel um, and the increased carbon usage that comes of that. Um, and that realisation, is that something that happened because of what's going on around us? I think so. I think it was seeing all those young people coming out on, for Extinction Rebellion in 2019 and particularly Greta Thunberg and thinking these people, that younger generation are saying you're killing our future. And that that rung, uh, sort of struck a chord with so many of us, rather than the government or the UN telling us we shouldn't do things. And I thought, yes, I am. Every impact that I do on the world is having, particularly flying, because it puts the methane up into the, the, the higher um, areas. And I thought, I just have to stop. And that's interesting, you know, Greta Thunberg, how she captured children's imagination as well, and that now there's a new generation that have an interest in change and in the natural world and its preservation. And not only have you written a book for adults about Irish language and the natural world, but you've now written a book for children um, about the natural world, which has a great title. <laughs> I wish I could remember the title. I'll try again. Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers and Other Words, Other Nature Words in Irish. I think it's a, it's a mouthful of a, a, a title. Yeah. <laughs> other Irish Words for Nature. Thank you. Very good. I need to learn the title of my book. <laughs> title aside, what is a tree dog? So um, a tree dog is a madrakreen. It's a squirrel. Like most people know the word squirrel is irarua or iragloss. Rua is the Irish. Not quite for red, for brownie, rusty, russety red, fox colour, which is the red. Era gloss. Gloss means either grey or green, so it's the squirrel. But but the, I love the idea of the mother tree, a tree dog, because it, it's like if a child saw a squirrel going up a tree, uh, that's it, that's a tree dog. And so many words in Irish are that, like that child's eye view of nature. So like the, a bat is skihan lahar, leather wings which is gorgeous, because again, if a child is going to look up at a bat, it looks leathery wings, to call it, call it leather wings. Or I love a whale, the Irish for whale is meal moor. And meal means just an animal or a beast, and moor is big, big beast, basically. But then a midge is meal tog, because a meal, a beast, og means small. So I love the way meal moor is a whale, <laughs> little bit, little beast is a midge. And there's a phrase, not den meal moor, the meal tog, don't make a whale out of a, out of a midge. What I love uh, about uh, Tree Dogs, the book, and 32 Words for Field, is that, um, and you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the waves, that the sound is encoded in Irish as well. You hear the waves, but there's also the sound of that horses make when they meet after an absence. Mm. What is that? Shetroch, shetroch. Like my mum gives out to me, she says shetroch when she was young just meant neighing, but yet this, because the language has been used in so many different contexts, I found that most beautiful definition, as you said, the sound that, that horses make after a long absence. And also shetrach can be used for the call of a hawk in the sky. And, uh, and the sound of a very specific sound, which is bees humming. Yeah, yeah. So fuchhurud, fuchhurud. And no cronon is another one for the cronon, the mach. 
the the humming of the bees. But Fogorod is lovely. It's like the murmur of the bees. There's also not just the humming of, of bees, but the humming of the breeze. Yeah, yeah. So Shionsan, again, there's a, quite a few words for that. Shionsan uh, can mean humming or buzzing, but also, as you said, the breeze whistling through somewhere. And then there's a lovely phrase, Shionsan the gun erin which is the, the crying of the hounds on the moorland or on the hillside. Um, but there's a different version from Shionsan. It's also Thurmon, and Thurmon is similar, but it actually is the roaring sound or the rumbling, or it can also be a whirlwind. I wonder, would that apply now? We're here in the Royal Irish Academy, and uh, listeners can probably hear the Lewis going past because they're right <laughs> in the city of Dublin. Would that word apply to this? Exactly. Thurmon on Lewis Ernelinta, the rumbling of the Lewis on the lines. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mankhan Magan. Agar Mahagatsa, thank you. Thanks to Mankhan McGann, his latest book, to give it its full title, is Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers and Other Irish Words for Nature, and it's published by Gill Books. To write today's short essay on the Book of Olees, I read The Treasures of the Royal Irish Academy Library, published by the RIA itself, and I also logged on to the Irish Script on Screen archive. It's a hidden digital gem that holds vast numbers of Irish manuscripts online, with commentary alongside them. That's at www.isos.diais.ie. Next time on Shelf Marks, I take a walk with Siobhan Mannion, and you'll hear about one of Ireland's origin stories. Thanks to the Royal Irish Academy, Shelf Marks is funded by the Arts Council Literature Project Award.